0: Self help from the hip. Small doses. We're talking that shit. Small doses. And keeping it real. Small me and It's so funky. <laughs> So today's episode of Small Doses, you know, I know that some of y'all when you saw side effects of one drop, you're like, what the hell? What that mean? Like, what is it one drop of what? Um is it one drop of, you know, a Felix Felicis potion from Hogwarts? Is it one drop of blood? Is it one drop of love? And I think, you know, to clarify, we are we are discussing today the idea of blackness. And for quite some time in this nation, there was this concept that one drop of black blood in you made you black. And, 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 and it's, It is a storied and most ridiculous concept that was really just created to try and uphold the tenets of racism and to try to, again, try and figure out ways in which to make this completely made up shit make sense so that black bodies could continue to be sold and commodified and limited and uh, all of the things, oppressed, etc. And someone who wrote wrote a a book about about it it, uh, (laughs) is Miss Yabba Blay. And doctor, doctor. Uh, <laughs> correction, <laughs> doctor. Thank you, man. Yeah, but you, you know, because you got to give the doctor where it's at. Listen, <laughs> you got to give it where it's at. All so, right, but that's doctor, <laughs> Blay. Um, I'm mad that there isn't a doctor right here. Like, why didn't they give you it's your a publishing
1: PA? world thing? It's
0: all good though. Well, we're gonna give it right here. I'm, I'm gonna actually write it in on my book. <laughs> um. So One Drop, Shifting the Lens on Race, is this great book that our guest today has put together full of interviews of individuals who, I think it's safe to say, kind of like walk the line of possibility when it comes to their relationship to Blackness, right? And they have defined their Blackness in a multitude of ways. My favorite was um, New Orleans Black. (laughs) Like, and what I love about the book is that people have defined their Blackness. Like, particularly, like, some people are like, I am mixed Black. Some people are like, I am Afro-Latina. And it's global, too, right? So you're diasporic in the conversation. And so today, Dr. Blay is joining us um, to talk about her book, to talk about this concept. And And also also to talk to me about where I would have fit in le book had I been interviewed, because me and my skin self are attacked on a daily basis <laughs> about whether or not my access to Blackness is legitimate.
1: Mm. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me.
0: I watch you and hear you on the Internet and the um, the intellectualism as well as the ratchademic. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they extend beyond and I'm like very honored to have you on the show because it was I know was also so easy and I appreciate that it was like hey you want to do the show you was like yeah I'm gonna do the show it was like okay <laughs> you're gonna do the show sure so works. please tell us like what made you decide that this was where you wanted to you know go with um this book
1: well as you can see I'm dark-skinned <laughs> yes. I have kinky hair I am Ghanaian born in America um, but I was born and raised in New Orleans. And so New Orleans has a long history, a beautiful black city, long history, long culture, but also a long history of colorism yeah. in the city. Right. And so my relationship to New Orleans, of course, I love my city, but I was very aware that I was dark skinned and mm-hmm. that I was different from a very you know, young age is part of the reason why colorism became something I wanted to study. You know, and so it's something that I focused on in my graduate studies. Um, I ended up doing my dissertation on skin bleaching in Ghana, which is a whole nother conversation in itself. But like most academics, you do your dissertation, you work yourself to death, and then you're over it. And I was definitely over it. A lot of academics will turn their dissertation into their first book. I was like, nah, it's trauma. <laughs> it's still trauma. It's, st- it's still sitting on the shelf back there behind my book, but. I had an experience in in grad school. I went to Temple, and Temple was very blackity-black. Yes, it is. I I got into Temple. I got
0: into Temple. I ended up going to uh, Columbia for grad. But but because Temple is
1: blackity-black, I applied. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And Philly is blackity-black, right? So moving from New Orleans to Philly into the Black Studies Department at Temple was like, you know, a homecoming of sorts. For me, mm. um, and again, I was going to be focusing on colorism and diaspora and skin bleaching and all this stuff. So cool. Maybe my second year, third year, um, a new sister entered the the department, and uh, I laugh about it now. And and I always laugh when I talk. She's in the book. We talked about it, but like we had rat beef. She claims the rat beef was on my part, and that's fine. But I ain't like her. <laughs> yeah, but why you ain't like her? I like her because she was acting light-skinned. What does and that by mean? That, by that, what I mean is, and again, context is my own experience, right? i coming from an experience where people literally will reject you to your face based upon your complexion. Like yes. not being invited to a friend's birthday party in elementary school because her mama said I was too Black. Right. That type of stuff, okay? So when I say acting light-skinned, I mean like, you know, she walked with a little prance and... um She didn't speak. Like, again, I told you, Temple is a very Black space. Like, we have Black cultural standards. And, like, if somebody raised you right, you enter into a room of Black people and you speak. You ain't got to speak to every single person in there, but good morning. How y'all doing? Acknowledge that there are other human beings in your presence, and she would not speak. Right? And so I'm like, oh, she wanted them. Because I'm connecting these dots. You acting like the people who hurt me, most honestly right? So if that's who you are, we'll keep our distance. And we kept our distance. When she was getting ready to graduate, one of our mutual professors was like, yeah, you really got to read her paper. I'm like, I'm not reading her paper. Fuck her paper. (laughs) her paper." But he knew my work. So he's like, no, you got to read her paper. I read her paper, come to find out that she identified as Black very strongly. So mother's white, father is Black, but she grew up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Now, once you leave Philadelphia, you're in Klan country. Like Pennsylvania is white.
0: Yes, yes, yes.
1: She grew up in a white Mennonite community. Mm. And so in that space, she was the blackest thing there was. She was very clear that she wasn't white. She was very clear that she was black, but then she comes to temple and people aren't receiving her as such. You know? And so, what and so
0: what you so what you read as her being uppity was her more so being insecure.
1: Being insecure. But I would say almost being because like it wasn't there. Was, let me tell you something. I gave respect because it's not like she, you know, averted eye contact. She didn't put her head down. She wasn't scared of me, you know, right, right, right Like with me. And that's fine. I'm not talking with you either. It but was, was she afraid so like, of you? No, that's what I'm saying. She wasn't. It was more so like, oh, I know how y'all are. I know why y'all treat me this way. So I'm going to keep my distance from you. So we got two people pr- protecting themselves. Yeah. From people who have historically hurt them.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. So I didn't even talk to her about it at the time she graduated. I graduated later. Years later, I was ready to do this book and I I reached out to her. (laughs) I reached out to her to interview her. And, you know, she says now she's like, I thought it was a setup. You know, she was asking me all Could have come with the heat. She asked me all kinds of clarifying questions, but she agreed to do it. And I'm so glad we had the conversation because again, hearing her experience helped me to understand, you know, not to give an excuse. I still tell her, you know, you got to speak to people, right? It's not to give you a pass for doing that. But she
0: didn't even come, but she didn't get, she wasn't raised in an environment where she was even taught that that is the thing to do. So it was kind of like her ignorance was on display as insolence.
1: Perhaps.
0: I'm just asking.
1: I mean, there's so many parts to it because she was raised by her white mother, Black father. Her father died when she was young. She still had aunties and other extended Black family, but it was like she would only see them, you know, family reunion type vibe. So day to day, yeah, it's a different cultural vibe. Right. Um, But it's also just still hard for me to understand how people don't speak. But that's something else. Right. Um, I've got (laughs) to tell you, you know. People don't speak.
0: the The frustrating part about it is that you you made a very, like, s- clear statement when you said it's like two people protecting themselves, and it's like we're both protecting ourselves from like what has hurt us in the past. But nine times, but so much of that hurt has been fueled by like a white supremacist, oh. you know, paradigm and, and construct Absolutely. that just this factored its way into. You know, the way that we interact as black people and it's the divide and conquer in like real time.
1: I mean, colorism is a seed of white supremacy and we always leave white supremacy out of the conversation and fight with ourselves. White supremacy did this to us. We didn't do this to us. I'm going to cry. <laughs>
0: it I mean, I did like a really good cat eye today. like it's subtle, but it's it's what it is, which is why I'm not gonna cry because I I have to go somewhere after this and I don't want to have to redo it. but that to me is like the crux of so much of where my frustration comes around the conversation about colorism because I think so often, we are just vehemently protecting ourselves from, you know, the things that hurt us, and so we're projecting on to each other. Mm-hmm. And when I say we, I mean dark skinned women talking to light skinned women, particularly women, because you know, I don't know, dudes have their own, and we need to talk about
1: that too, right? hetero
0: dudes, yeah, like they got their <laughs> own shit, like, like you know, and and um and they Still
1: got that supremacy. Still connected to white supremacy because her and gender are intertwined in how we read, right? People's yeah. sexuality, people's gender identity, based upon where they fit on the on the color hierarchy, because of how white supremacy has defined what it means to be masculine and what yes. it means to be feminine. And so in the conversation with colorism, a lot of the frustration, I think, between us, particularly when we're talking about sisters, is that light skinned women are always projected as beautiful. That's it. Light skin equals beautiful. You could have three eyeballs (laughs) with light skin, but it equals beautiful. Yet somehow you got to turn your head. You got to think about it. You got to be trained to see beauty in dark skin. Right. Right. And so then the frustration comes in our interactions. And so yes, white supremacy is at the foundation of, of colorism. White supremacy is at the foundation of our rat beef. Not everybody plays into it, but a lot of folks do. So it's hard when you just seeing people to know where you fall in terms of the politics of skin color. You could very much well be a light skinned woman who's like, yes, I'm light skinned. Therefore, I'm beautiful. Therefore, the world owes me all of these things as a Black woman. I should be a representation of Black women, not you, Yaba. You could be. I wouldn't know that if I didn't talk to you.
0: I think that's just such a bold assertion to put on somebody because I think at the end of the day, there's also like all of these very negative things that have been aligned thanks to white supremacy with dark skin that I would never consider to put on a dark skin person that I don't know. Right. Because at the end of the day, I take black people as a whole at face value. Like, I'm not going to let white supremacy determine how I view another black person, because I just feel like that's them once again winning and somehow like, you know, having control of my my mentals.
1: But, you know, you're not regular in that way, right?
0: Well, you know, uh-uh. yeah, you know, Dr. Blay, uh, <laughs> I know that I'm not regular in that way.
1: And not you, Amanda, as a light-skinned woman. I'm talking Amanda and Yaba as Black people. The fact that we're having a conversation and we're connecting this to a larger institution called white supremacy, even us having this conversation isn't regular, isn't normal. There are lots of Black folks who we want to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and take accountability and be responsible for our own shit and not willing to say it's not ours. There's yeah. so many things happening, right? There's so many black. I think honestly, you know, I say white supremacy all the time. I, I I deliberately say white supremacy more than I say racism. I choose the language of yes. white supremacy because I don't want to make it about individuals. People don't understand racism, and so they think it's about a racist individual. No, you're it's, racist. It's, this is the global history, institution of thought. supremacy. You know how many black people are uncomfortable with that language.
0: Yes, I do, because I was a part of a book um, that was challenging white supremacy, and there were a number of celebrities, and I guess I had been considered a celebrity when approached as bringing part of the celebrity voices to the book. That was, like, the concept. And there were a number of my peers who chose not to be featured in the book because they did not want to be aligned with the language of white supremacy. People who I've seen very earnestly speak out against racism yeah. did not want to align themselves with that language. And I just was like, do you not get it?
1: Mm-hmm. And that's why <laughs> so right. you're comfortable. Good. Cause now we can shift something. If you're comfortable with the language, there's a problem. You're too so comfortable with the language of racism. You think you know what that means. Talk to the average person, how to define racism. They can tell you how they feel. They can tell you what they think it looks like, but they've never been pushed to actually learn about it. Right. We take it for granted. If you don't understand something, say that and then we can have a conversation.
0: It's so hard for us to say we don't understand something. And then and then honestly, there's also this climate that says, well, why the fuck don't you understand it? Um, and then that then puts you on the, on the ropes too. Right. Because like, there's all these conversations that have been going on around Palestine and Israel. And for a lot of folks, like that just hasn't been a part of their zeitgeist, me included. Like it, it was something that I was aware of, but in a very, um, orbital, you know, like way. And I was being pressured to have a very clear opinion point of view and understanding before I was even allowed the opportunity to just immerse. Right. And I think part of that is also because I'm a black woman who speaks and they're like, well,
1: particularly because you're a black woman who I would say is anti-racist for lack of better word, a black woman who's ready to call out white supremacy, like ready. Right. And so (laughs) ready on site. And so, I think also what's happening in, in the public sphere is that many folks are like, look, if your Black Lives Matter and you're able to point the finger at white supremacy, we also need you to connect that and, and, and speak out against what's happening in Palestine, which I understand, but what you said is so important across the board, white supremacy, racism, patriarchy, uh, homophobia, whatever it is, all the isms, all the institutions, right? We cannot take for granted that people have ever been taught, let alone challenged, right? About these topics, about these issues. Um, we can't take for granted that people understand And My thing is like, I never, I don't look for quote unquote celebrities to have a statement, right? Because I, I, I'm i the person that sides I, I side eye everybody, right? In the same way after George Floyd's murder, all of these brands and organizations are coming out with the black square. And everybody has a statement. And my thing is like, how do we operationalize this? What's this look like at your company?
0: I had a meeting recently and the executive that I was speaking to, she was Asian. And she was just like, you know, they talk a lot about diversity and they do these hires. And she's like, you know, like hires like me. She's like, but we are all middle management. And she was like, at the end of the day, the top brass and the people who have the power to say yes or no are still the exact same. And they look the exact same and they consider things upon the exact same metrics, which is simply just, does it make money and will it disrupt? Because they're like, it can't dis- it can't disrupt too much. Period. And I thought that was interesting that she saw that, particularly as an Asian woman, because I also was like, oh, that's very, you know, insightful. Just seeing, because I feel like a lot of the Asian people I come in contact with, they definitely are part of like a model minority in the, in this Hollywood space. And sure. so I was like very, uh, and this is before all of this, you know, AAPI movement started happening. So I was really like, okay, you see it. Because we were talking about, um, you know, some some pieces of work that are around Ghanian and um, Nigerian storytelling, et cetera. And she was just saying how like, you know, this, these are stories that would be dope and they need to be told, but the people in power are kind of like, yeah, but we don't really relate to that. We don't really, know. I mean, listen, I tried to sell a show called my funny and black and people were like, where does, where do white people exist in this show?
1: No matter so, what you call it, we censor whiteness. The norm is whiteness. You're concerned about white people being able to connect with it,
0: period. So in this book, you very decisively um, are talking to people about where they situate Blackness for themselves.
1: Yeah, and so most of the folks in the book identify as connected to the identity we'll call Blackness. They use a variety of terms to self-identify, but they see themselves as Black, I allo- I, not allowed. But when I asked them how do they identify, they gave me their specific languages. Is why you see all the different terms. But all of them have had the experience of people looking at them and being like, what are you? Right. Like, who they are, what they are based upon what they look like, or making assumptions about who they are based upon what they look like. So I thought it was an interesting entry point to talk about Blackness because nobody's asked me, what are you? There are no questions about what I am. Right. So I've never been in a position to have to actually defend or define blackness. I wouldn't know where to begin to define blackness. It is what it is. I know it. You know it. We good. No. But for someone who's looking at you and can't tell where you fit in this color scheme and this racial hierarchy, then you're put in a position to have to defend your identity. And so you come up with language of how to define your blackness. And so I thought it was an interesting entry point, to have a conversation about Blackness as an identity, as a lived experience. So
0: as someone who is consistently being asked or being challenged to defend their Blackness, I would like to offer myself up as yeah. uh, <laughs>
1: <laughs> as a subject. Thank you. Um, Thank you. So if, we, if, if we had talked, if, if I was able to connect with you and invite you to be a part of this project... The very first question I would have asked you is, how do you identify racially and culturally?
0: Racially and culturally as a Black American Caribbean woman.
1: Black American Caribbean woman. Tell me what that means.
0: My father is Black American. He is the descendant of Arkansas slaves. And my mother is born and raised in Grenada and the descendant of Black people in Grenada, as well as... um, some Irish man. <laughs>
1: okay. So you can point to the Irish man.
0: Yes. Because he was my great grandmother's boss and mm-hmm. she was his maid.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So that math is pretty mm-hmm. basic. Gotcha. You. Does your family consider that man family? Does anybody no. come Irish? No, no, nobody considers him family. And, and he didn't consider us family. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we all in typical Caribbean fashion live very closely juxtaposed to each other and, and adjacent to each other within a village mm-hmm. um and so there was a facebook page for our village and the white woman there was a white woman who had posted him and was like, you know this is my fa- this is my great grandfather and my, no she was like, this is my grandfather so it would have been my Yes, it's my grandfather and you know um she was saying all this stuff and then my mom was like, "Yeah, that's my grandfather too." Yeah.
1: <laughs> I <know that's> right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and this set off a firestorm, you know, but um so even though we even though that we weren't we, we didn't claim him as family, there was descendancy though that took place that just by the nature of proximity did end up there ended up being certain family ties. So like my great, my grandmother by literally just proximity ended up knowing her half sister. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, and I'm talking when I say proximity, I mean, living across the street from each other. And so Mm -hmm. then that half sister, you know, she married some other white man who's in Grenada and then they have a white family. But then we and our Black family are across the street, literally. And then they owned like a little bit of land. I mean, it's real Caribbean, African.
1: It's also also real because as you're talking, one of the things I talk about in the intro to the book is like trying to map out this history of the one drop rule because so many people um, don't understand it or don't know where it came from or think it's just, you know, hearsay or what have you. But part of the reason of instituting that one drop rule, which is which is strictly American, I should say. It doesn't make sense in any other space, right? But the purpose of the one drop rule in a lot of ways was to to solidify this definition of whiteness as pure. Yes. right? Right? So to be white meant that you had to have, if we go five generations back, everybody gotta be white. Even if it's one black person, one drop, one black person, five generations back, then you're black, right? But also in so doing, what it ultimately did is it took white men like your great grandfather off the hook. You don't have to claim those people You'd have to claim
0: them. Yeah. You have your whole other lineage over here that you can, you know, that they it's fine for them to have just a direct right to your um legacy and these people over here to be scrambling. But what no. he didn't realize was that we was never going to scramble. And my my grandmother owned a shop. And so yeah. they ended up having to buy from our shop. Yeah. And and then what ultimately ended up happening was that my, my, so I guess my, I, it's a, it's a cousin, but we call it auntie. So my, one of my white aunt, aunties married a black man and then she had a black child, but she had married a white man first and had two white children from that white man. Mm-hmm. And they were so racist to her mm-hmm. black child mm-hmm. and they weren't to me. Because Michelle was a little bit darker than me. Of course, I wasn't aware of these dynamics when I was a kid. But as I got older and Michelle, rest in peace, um, it was very clear. My mom, you know, elucidated this to me later, you know, that like, yeah, they used to just treat Michelle like crap.
1: Because she was browner.
0: That's it. That's Mm -hmm. it. And because Mm -hmm. she was theirs. I think it was fine for them to treat me nice also, even though I was brown, because I wasn't theirs. It was mm-hmm. more like a choice. It had a certain level of charity to it. It's like, you're <laughs> still over there. But right. she's like, they're, they're feeling like we have to claim this because she's our da- She's our granddaughter. She's disrupting our purity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah. that, um, that really, my mom had like serious, you know, ish. like my mom didn't let that ride and had serious issues with that. But in terms of like, so when I talk about like my blackness, I'm far more, um, I mean, I just know my mother's side of the family far more than my father's side. Um, but I'm also intrinsically aware that as a, that I am a black American woman and that I, I do very consciously exist in a duality. Okay.
1: Black American, Caribbean, I got all the questions. Black American, Caribbean woman. So I have a few questions. You can you can jump in which one feels right. So one of the questions I want to ask you is what do people assume about your identity when they see you? But I kind of want to break that in too, because I'm wondering and presuming that there might be two different experiences in the United States versus Grenada.
0: Mm-hmm. First of all, that was a great pronounces of Grenada. Yeah. Um... <laughs>
1: Do people question your blackness in Grenada?
0: No. No, in Grenada, they don't question my blackness at all. I mean, they question my Grenadian-ness. Yes. You know, but no one is like, oh, you're light skin," because it's a black island.
1: (laughs) Oh, Okay. Is there language? And again, excuse me, folks who are going to take offense. Language happens differently across the world. My people are from Ghana. They don't have no problem calling somebody a half caste, right? I, I think know that's I, an older the, term, mulatto, as well. You know, that's the no, older no, term. Coolie,
0: coolie, is, is more like Indian. Okay. Um, so, like, you'll hear that more in Guyana and Trini- and Trinidad and Tobago. Um, okay. But half caste, I feel like is a more like that's my mom's like generation, like, and my mom was born in 47, but I have never, I have never, I've never felt that awareness in Grenada more so it's all, it's the challenge is like, Oh, you're not really Grenadian. You're, you're, um, I forgot what they call me. It's kind of like the reverse of off the boat. (laughs) You are Yankee. That's what they call me. A Yankee. Okay. Here. I mean, You have black folks who are like, well, there's light skinned black folks. So that's not a conversation. Right. But then you have other folks who are like, you absolutely have a white parent. I don't know who you're fooling and you're non-foundational. So I've had, I mean, that, that was said to me like this morning, you know, you're a non-foundational black person and you have no claim to speak about black life. Um, I've been told by like quite a few folks that identify as Eidos, right? As American descendants of s- slavery. Like, you know, you need to go back to, uh, you need to go back to your island, you dirty Islander, you know? And it's like the language is so, inc- it's just so mimicking of the language that we have seen used against us and other folks that have come onto this, into this nation that it's it's like, it's hurtful, I'm not going to lie. It's really, it hurts me.
1: So I want to put... I want to put Eidos over here because I don't do that. Okay. I can't even really even talk about it because it's so asinine and so hurtful to me as a Pan-Africanist. I was going to say, because they're like, well, you ain't Black neither. And you're like... Bitch, where? <laughs> also, also because also, we're not never letting white supremacy off the hook.
0: And that's where I land all the time, is, is not letting white supremacy off the hook. When I feel like I'm having a conversation with a dark-skinned woman about colorism, and the conversation turns into, well, as a light-skinned Black woman, you should be willing to accept any slings and arrows that are thrown at you um, from other dark-skinned women, I don't think that's fair. And I think that at the end of the day, both all black women should, should be protected. So I feel that. And I also understand the difference between like my feelings being hurt and systemic oppression based on colorism.
1: Yes. So quite a few things happening, right? So when I say we're not letting white supremacy off the hook, it is to say that if you understand white supremacy with as, as an institution with a particular insidious history, right. Mm-hmm when we talk about the politics of race, the politics of skin color, the politics of hair, you understand that there are negotiations of power at play. Yes. At what point do we have time to be talking about, you don't descend from enslaved Africans, therefore you don't get to say something. You come from this, we don't have, why? did you hear there's a historical definition of whiteness as pure? Period. They don't have time to be talking about where I'm you can say, they're not even bifurcating like that. <laughs> and even when they did, because Italians weren't always white, Irish weren't right. always white, Jews weren't... You see, they changed that shit up real quick. Because they white... Serve, not- serve to serve their purpose. Negotiations of power. They're clear. Negotiations of power. What are we clear about? Do we have time for this? Do we have time for- Again... Well,
0: why do you think they do have time for this?
1: I don't I can't speak to that. I don't know. I don't know. Because again, and I, I'm trying to stay focused. I don't see my book at hand. It's behind
0: I, you to your to your not,
1: not my book, but the book I want to make reference to, Homegoing by yajasi Like I want to oh, teach a book. Yes. I want to a class on, on this book. Because for me, even for as learned as I am, right? Reading that book, like I cried and cried and yes. cried. And I
0: read that book while I was in Ghana.
1: <laughs> I read that because book while I was in Ghana and Togo. It maps it out in a way, even though it's fiction, I consider it historical fiction because it's 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 it maps it out in a way that I don't think most of us consider, right? And so, for those of you who haven't read the book, read the book. I'm not going to tell you what's it about, but on the one of the first pages, she maps out a a, a family tree, right? And so, imagine Amanda and I are sisters in Ghana chilling enslavement begins, I get snatched up, you stay behind. Aren't we still sisters? Aren't my babies still your nieces and nephews? Aren't their descendants still your family? We may not know each other's name. We may not ever be in touch again. And so the book just beautifully maps out generation by generation, what it looks like at home, what it looks like abroad. It's so brilliant, but it's also so eye-opening because we, again, where you came from? Where did you come from? You just, are, and so to say that you are no longer connected to that continent, to those cultures, to those people, to even say those people, to not connect yourself, white supremacy wins time. every time. Be mad at white supremacy, yes. don't be mad at us. We can't afford to do that. It's just so painful and so hurtful. So if you want to have a conversation about who deserves reparations, we want to do that. Every person with a bit of Black blood deserves reparations, period. Done. Done.
0: Well, it also, you know, and I I did a panel this morning and I forget the individual's name on the panel, but he was brilliant. And he, so thus I need to learn his name. But he was speaking specifically to the fact that when we speak about reparations, we cannot simply just attach it to that which was stolen from us as slaves. Because as Black people in this country, our... um, our right to, to happiness and to live and to have access to the wealth and the economy of this country while we are building the wealth in this co- economy of this country has, go- has been limited far beyond the the days of emancipation. He said, you know, from our inability to advance in home ownership and land ownership and education and the wealth gap, et cetera, et cetera. And the way that we have propped up uh, the prison industrial complex, he was like, we are, we have generations Of folks that can, that are basically racking up a tab of reparations because the, the liberation hasn't happened, you know, like there were Japanese internment camps and then there weren't. And then they gave reparations. Here we go. There we go.
1: Right. We haven't had the, then there weren't yet. And honestly, this type of talk, this is why we can't have nice things. (laughs) We're doing it to ourselves. This is why we can't have nice things. Ain't going to be no reparations. Because y'all can't even be clear about who's supposed to get it. And why come it's only folks who are the descendant of enslaved Africans who deserve reparations? What about the Africans? What about the Caribbean folks?
0: I was going to say, you know, I think the other thing, too, is that we fail to acknowledge that this country was built before it was considered this country. You know, 1776 is when America became, quote unquote, America. However, the land of America was being supported by money and and the slave labor of Brazil and, you know, America. I mean, the uh, the Americas and and the Caribbean long before this was considered a nation. So this America was built
1: on the backs of slaves as it was Britain. (laughs) America is the ultimate Jedi mind trick. Well, it's it's the
0: empire. I mean, it's, and they just keep getting new Darth Vaders. Don't take me down the Star
1: Wars route. No, no, that's what I'm saying. Let's not, let's not even, let's not wake it up because, you know, I'd be wanting to peel my skin off. And I also don't want these people coming for me, but I know they're on their way. Hey y'all. So, what do people? My see? listeners,
0: my listeners are not coming for you. My listeners are coming to buy your book. Like that, <laughs> the people who listen to this podcast, when they're coming for you, they're coming for your autograph. They're like, "Oh, you gave Amanda an inscription. I would like an inscription. I'm vaccinated." Like just,
1: that. <laughs> it's supposed to say seriously. Like when I, I, I just see the conversations online. It makes me sad for us. It really, you know, Harry Tumman is my patron saint. It makes me think about, you know. What she must have experienced, you know, but I also come back and I find peace and comfort in the idea that she did not believe she had to save everybody. She knew that she couldn't save everybody because she had to also protect her own freedom. Like, I'm going to risk my life for some of y'all, but I'm not risking my life for all of y'all. All All y'all can't come, and that's okay. It has to be okay. What it means to love Black people sometimes means to also be discerning in that love. And so I make peace with that. We put them over there. We continue our conversation. So, how does it make you feel when people question your Blackness?
0: Invalidated. Hmm. Um, And it makes me feel it's a trigger. It's like I've worked through a lot of my traumas and triggers, but that one seems to still always have one in the chamber. Um, and I think because it's not attached to like a parent, it's it's attached to kind of like these beings that don't have any face like they were just, you know, it was throughout school and whatnot. And, you know, my experience as a light skinned girl was I was around a lot of dark skinned black girls who were like very very clearly letting me know like you ain't us. And I was like, but I want to be. And then I grew up in LA and Orlando, but primarily Orlando was where my consciousness, cause I was like eight when I moved to Orlando. And then when I was, and then I would have like white girls who are like, you're like black, but not like black, black, you know what I mean? And then I had a mother who was like very clear that we are black.
1: Right. Don't and,
0: you know, that that is not a that's not like a discussion point. Um, And I'm surrounded by art and music and, you know, television and film that supports this and lifts this up. You know, whether it's Bob Marley, whether it's hearing Maurice Bishop speak, whether it's just being nestled very comfortably. And I say comfortably in blackness also because my mother was in no uncertain terms, made it explicitly clear that like, I was never to forsake or question my blackness for anybody. And that I was never to put whiteness ahead of myself. So it was like, no white, don't you ever let these white people think that they got something on you because they white. Like, don't you ev- like ever. And that's not just kids. Like, that was like, So when we go to this doctor, you're going to tell this white doctor what's wrong with you and what you're feeling. And you're not going to let him make you feel like you don't have a voice in, like, explaining that. So I was very early on given voice. And my mother very early on demonstrated, like, you white motherfuckers ain't gone. (laughs) And then I found out and then I found out later that I had a first grade teacher, Miss Channel. And I found out later because I was too young to know that she was doing this, but we ended up having brunch a couple of years ago. And she was like, Well, I identified very early on, but you were a brilliant black child and they were gonna come for you. Mm-hmm. And so I made so she was like, We we had a conversation, the black teachers, about that you needed to be protected. Um, mm-hmm. and she was like, and we had that about all of our black students, <laughs> you know, that we needed to protect y'all. And she was like, you know, you in your special, you say that you learned the Negro national anthem in 10th grade, but you were singing that in kindergarten and in first grade. And I was like, was I? (laughs) She was like, yeah, because I wasn't going to have y'all talking about this land is your land. This land is my land. When that's just not true.
1: So I didn't know. As, as you're talking, it's also reminding me, right. How important the job of parenting, right. How important the job of educators, like, so many of us can point to the person who helped along the way, right? Mm-hmm. And like, I wonder, I hope, I pray that folks are still doing that and recognizing why it is so critical and important that we have to be deliberate, yeah, right, in like grounding our children, grounding our youth, grounding them in their blackness. You know, it's something for them to hold on to because they don't have to fight everybody in the world. They cannot be fighting themselves.
0: Well, I went, you know, when you ask, like, how does it make you feel when people question my Blackness? It's like I, at a certain point, was fighting myself because my purpose, as it has been designated by myself, has been to, like, I, I want to fight on behalf of, I want to speak from the place of, I want to create in empowerment for Black people. Like, that has always been organic to me. You know, in other places and other spaces, I feel like I've had to kind of, okay, wrap my head around it, but that has never required any level of like adjustment, it was always very clear. So Mm -hmm. when, so when people, you know, question your, your black question, my blackness, it felt like they were questioning my purpose Mm -hmm. and in questioning my purpose, that's, that hits you because that's why you're, that's, that's why you have decided to live, right? Like that's Mm -hmm. the track that you're living on, you know? And, and so that's been, you know, I had to do a lot of, I had to do a lot of like confidence building and like restrengthening of my foundation to get back to like, what What do you really know of yourself? Because these people
1: don't even fucking know you. And somehow they matter. But let me ask you this and don't feel no way. It's something I ask all of them. It's something, it's, it's a little, you know, hypothesis. Do you think that, um, <laughs> do you think that- The pencil made an appearance. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that because of your light-skinnedness and because people question your Blackness or have questioned your Blackness to the degree that they have, do you believe that that then causes you to perform posture, turn it on uh, a notch? Like, you're not going to question my Blackness. I'm about to be the Blackest Negro in here.
0: That's just never... I've never been a performative person. Like, I mean, I think... And that's why I take it back to, like, I grew up in a very Black household. Like, so I think people think that because it looks like that to them because that's the context that they have for that. But for me, it it's like... Like I said, how, like, in Grenada, I'm not... I was... Ne- my Blackness was never questioned. Like, so within my... Caribbean upbringing, like my blackness was never questioned. So therefore, like I never had to perform in that space. It wasn't until I was in middle school that I would say like, it the, the, you know, things kind of started where it's like, oh, like you think you black, but you talk white. Mm-hmm. And so like, I have a poem called Oreo where I talk about how there was a moment where I felt like, oh, maybe I need to like, learn these different language points and start saying y'all and you know <laughs> in order to like meet some standard of what blackness is but ultimately it's like no like your black is every black experience is a black experience unless it's anti-black like i genuinely believe that and i stand behind that and um i have also had incredibly unique experiences right, right? like i mean i I think that's the other part that a lot of people don't acknowledge either is that like we are individuals and we have unique experiences that shape us. And so to answer your question, no, I don't think I think that that is why people think that a lot of right. times.
1: Um, right. But
0: I also think the proof is in the pudding and you can only put on but so long.
1: Yeah, (laughs) Agreed. And there's a way to to feel that. But I think it's also important. You know, I feel like there are multiple conversations that we are going to have to continuously have. Right. And so the book is really a conversation about black racial identity. There's, you know, skin color politics and colorism intertwined into that conversation. But like someone like me, I'm not questioning you. I want to you say you black. Tell me how. Because to me, this is like it was almost like a highlight. Like, wait a minute. Y'all black. Y'all not rejected. Right. I hear about this. It was it was a celebration for yes, me it is. from all over the world claim their blackness. When in my mind, they could have opted out. They could have chosen something else. You could but have chosen by whatever. The
0: biracial thing is always a weird thing for me because I, and, and listen, I'm not saying that this is a blanket statement, but many I would say all of the biracial people that I have been like in close proximity with their claim to biracial is really more so just a wanting to claim access to white privilege. Like, um, when it gets down to it, like, cause they'll be like, well, you know, I don't want to just forget about my dad. And he's, and it's like, okay, but your dad is, is your dad. Like he doesn't have to be whiteness like, you know, and, and his it's
1: interesting though, in talking this book coming out again, because um, I saw clothed shit in 2013. What's interesting this time around, and I think it's because of the moment, right? Everybody wants to be anti-racist and woke. I'm hearing the most from white mothers of who they define as biracial and or mixed children, right? And the discomfort with like, well, what about me? What does it mean if my child, I give birth to this child and they just say that they're black? What about me? And like... Where are now- you from? But also, what do you have to do with that? And so I think you remember on social, I shared someone's tweet. It was a a white woman who tweeted and she since deleted her account. But (laughs) after uh, Antoine Wright was uh, murdered and she was saying how it really shook her up because all this time she was thinking that her biracial son, like she knew he had some black, but she would never think that all of this stuff would have she thought his whiteness was or bad. his half whiteness was protecting him but what is half whiteness as a lived experience those cops don't give a shit about you mommy when they encounter your son in the car and so i think for white parents who are struggling with how their children should identify you got to take yourself you are not there your whiteness didn't protect him mommy it can't protect him there's no being as a half white lived experience. You don't get to pull out a white card, Mr. Police Officer, don't kill me because I'm more like you than them. They don't care, it doesn't work that way. So like when we talk about people's identity and that's why it was important for me to let people use the language of their choosing, right? Because what we say out of our mouths reflects what we think in our heads, what we feel perhaps. And though there are lots of folks who identify as biracial and or mixed, that's theirs, fine. I'm not gonna argue with that. I do have questions. though. What is biracial? What is mixed in this racial climate? What does that mean? And also, why?
0: Like when I when I was uh, DMing, not DMing, but we were on Instagram the other day, and I was like, "Wait, there's a
1: there's a rapper named Melato." Ooh, yeah, it is. Well, she changed? I, th- I think I read a headline that she just changed it to like Big Lotto or something. No. <laughs> so much uh flat for it but yeah light
0: skin keisha light
1: skin keisha because again what is it that you want me to know about you when you hit the stage and say i'm a lotto or i'm light skin keisha and light skin keisha again this is why context and upbringing. i'm from new orleans i light skin to me is a lot different than a lot of folks but light skin keisha baby no she was you not you might be light in Ghana. fair but you're not even like Skin in Atlanta, sis. So you're not.
0: <laughs> you know, at the top of the show, you were saying that, like, I'm a unique person. You're a new, you, you are, We are entering these conversations in unique ways. And I think, you know, I've been really working on just having more grace around that, around understanding that when these conversations are being had or I'm being approached in these different ways, um, the entry points are different. Um, particularly just even the, even in the fact that like I've, I've done academic study in this space. Right. So there's like a certain level of like, just, not just my feelings and experience, but also like a critical thinking and like academic approach that I've taken to studying other people's experiences and perspectives when a lot of people really don't, right? Like they speak from solely their experience, solely their perspective, and that is what informs everything and nothing mm-hmm. else really matters. And so I've been trying to be more graceful for that, with that. You know, as a light-skinned Black woman, I do think it is on my shoulders to be open to conversations around colorism that are uncomfortable. Um, I stop them. When they become disrespectful. Mm-hmm. And so when you start to address me as a white woman, mm-hmm. then I stop the conversation.
1: Yeah, because you shouldn't have to
0: because that's not something I'm going to accept. So like I've been, I've been told, like, oh, you sound like a like you're you're behaving as a fragile black as a fragile white woman um, for simply stating like I don't appreciate being spoken to in this way. And you know, that's a very hmm. That is like pointed language that doesn't, to me, open room for like actual growth and discourse.
1: And I think that's what we have to model. I feel like we could have a whole other conversation about that, because I do think there's a lot of work that we have to do as sisters. Yes. Right. To to uh, to begin and not to say as a fin- definitive heel right but to work towards healing right we all have to come to the table with a particular level of vulnerability and honesty and openness use the language of grace um but i think for me what's helpful is like if i'm able to admit that there's trauma let's not continue to traumatize one another right i i have a friend and colleague who's light-skinned brilliant very anti-colorism, right? Same kind of deal. People make a lot of presumptions about uh, who she is and what she stands for. But she has a lot that we could all, like there's conversations to be had about colorism, but she also knows and feels like she can't be the voice of a colorist conversation if that makes sense, right? So if she- You if, just gonna
0: keep affirming me today because I have said that and got so much fucking heat. About what? I have said I don't feel like I should be the voice of the colorist conversation. I should be lifting up voices Mm -hmm. and and giving and creating space for that conversation. And the two things I get heat for are that and for saying that I don't feel like my light skin has been the sole reason for my success.
1: Mm, Yeah, people don't like that. huh?
0: They don't. And I will continue to say that. Um, Because, again, I feel like if I attribute my light skin to the sole reason for my success, then I have then given white supremacy uh, the credit for my talent, for my ethic, et cetera. Has it been a part of it? Without question. Okay. As long as you say that. But without, I mean, without question. But I think people will want to say, like, well, you need to say it's 90% of it. And I'm
1: just, I won't. The other thing, too, is how would you know? (laughs) Right. Are the people going to look at you and say this is the reason for it? I mean, I think there are things that you can to it and you probably know just based upon your experience, which is why you are acknowledging that it has contributed. But what I you're mean, saying. I how could not? Happy, Of course. Right. But you're not willing to give all of it up to colorism, which I, I get. I wouldn't tell you to. But the notion of. And it's something I want to work through. Something I want to work through, something I want to talk to, I think we have to acknowledge because I'm also thinking back to my relationship with Danny, who's in the book. This is a we were talking about in grad school. We have to also recognize how our bodies are triggers. Right. So if you, Amanda, become the voice of a colorism conversation, you should expect every bow and arrow at your head. Yes. Because your body represents pain and trauma for so many people who don't want to hear it coming out your mouth. But me. Oh, I can win an Academy Award talking about colorism. You want to hear I it from should. me? Okay? You want to hear it from me? Yes. Okay? Um, but it's not to say, Amanda, don't talk about colorism at all.
0: I mean, honestly, it becomes you have to. I have to be so particular about the particular space and who I'm in con who I'm in conversation with. Like, even you felt the need, like, in our DM to like make it clear, like, this is a safe space. <laughs> <laughs> I like, I didn't even ask that of you, you know? Like, is you going to come from my, like, what? I didn't even ask that of you. You were just like, but I'm just letting you know. Um, and I think ultimately, like, that's the, that's what we were talking about with just as, as a sisterhood of travel, in the sisterhood of traveling colorism. Like, we have to be able <laughs> to have that conversation. You know, I had a brother tell me one time, he was like, the whole goal is to always uplift confidence. Hmm. And I was like, say more. And because we were, we, were, we were having what could have been an argument had he not been somebody who had really worked on himself. Mm-hmm. And he was like, I'm upset right now because the way that you handled that situation, it didn't feel like you were aware of my feelings or the way that your words could like disrupt my confidence.
1: Hmm.
0: And I was like, "Oh,
1: my bad. My bad, brother.
0: You know what I'm
1: saying? <laughs> uh, let me let, let me build you back up."
0: But him being able to verbalize that to me just kind of is something that's always sat with me because mm-hmm. that's the first thing we do is like we try and chop down.
1: No you doubt. know, no doubt. And once you say this is a conversation about colorism, lots of folks come to the table armed. Like Absolutely. if you come into the conversation ready to fight, then we gonna have a fight. But what is it like, ultimately, what is the purpose? What's the goal of this conversation? Do we really want to have this conversation because we want to move forward to wherever we're going? Or do we want views, likes, comments? Like, what is it that we want? I've seen a lot of toxic colorism conversations, but folks want to have the conversation. I'm only interested in having colorism conversations that are allowing us to connect the dots back to white supremacy. Absolutely. And recognize that we are not crabs nor should we be in barrels and that ultimately <laughs> if we recognize white supremacy as the problem what's what are we trying to do you trying to build we trying to move because we, we're always going to put it on the table so what does that mean for amanda who is seen as light skin, received as light-skinned skin? What is your relationship to white supremacy i can fuck with you because i'm clear that you're anti-white supremacy boom I should then be able to trust that your intention in having the conversation is always to dismantle dismantle white supremacy. But it's also something similar to what the brother is saying to you. It's also something that you would also have to keep in mind, which is difficult, because if people come into the table armed, Amanda, of course, you're going to want to defend yourself. It's so many things that we have. So many things.
0: And I've been literally, t- you know, and honestly, like, and, and, you know, again, people's experiences are their experiences and that it's their truth. But like, I've been told that as a light-skinned woman, as a light-skinned black woman, like I should be expected to, to have to defend myself and I should be okay with that. Um, and I just, I bristle at that because I also know that as a light-skinned black woman, I'm sit- you sit at this weird intersection of like upholding white supremacy as, at the same time as being a victim of it. Um yeah. Because you still experience discrimination, like you still experience. And so and then in the same way, it's like, how do I make room for dark skin sisters? How do I make room while still making room for me? Sure. Um, and, you know, that consciousness is one that I think is not as we it's like we never get to that conversation. Absolutely. I know for me in my work, I make a point of being very conscious about like the roles that I will go out for. Um you know, and when I see shit that's sideways being like, this is fucking sideways. They just had me audition for a role where the sister looks just like you. And they sent me an audition for that. And I was like, how? Because it was a biopic. And I was like, how? How? Why'd y'all send me this?
1: But this is what I'm saying, Amanda. If we are, if we're at the table, right. And we're strategizing because we know how white supremacy works. Amanda, your mission is every time you hit that room, sis, we need you to call their bullshit out to their face. Do not take the role. Let them know that this is it's colorism at play. Let them know what colorism is and walk away as opposed to a Zoe Saldana who years later apologizes for taking Nina Simone. You should have never taken you the role. conceptualize it? Michael Ely should have never been tea cake in their eyes for watching God. If you read the book, you feel what? me? And so the issue is, was. ma'am, ma'am, okay? The issue is we are now side-eyeing your integrity. So don't come at me about your blackness when the right dollar amount hits the table, you'll take the role. That was fabulous to Nina Simone's memory. And I don't want to beat up on Zoe because she's caught it for old and new, but I am- i mad to- about it though.
0: Because I, I I didn't even understand how that conception, let me tell you, you know how hard it is to get something made? Do you know how long, you know, the process, it is, there is nothing turnkey <laughs> about getting anything made. So, to, so that's why that project was so disconcerting to me. Cause I'm like, this had to go through a lot of phases.
1: And for who Nina Simone was. Oh my
0: if- God. Nina is in her grave. Like y'all should never burden me with these AKs because it's like, <laughs> like,
1: like fuck turning in a grave. She's shooting from the grave you have to put on prosthetic makeup to still not I don't want to talk about it I don't want to talk about it because like because it's taking me it's
0: taking me it's taking me it's it's like it's like Raven Simone like Raven Simone was on The View and she had you know she took every opportunity on The View to just be not a voice for black for blackness and that bristles me to this day to the point where someone put a post up about like that's so Raven the other day and I was like you know she had every opportunity and people were like you're so it is. Why are you bringing this into this space? And it's like, because every time I'm triggered by it. Somebody, has, triggered to, by it.
1: somebody has to bring it into this space. Somebody oh. has to keep having the conversation.
0: And when I come into the space, that conversation, I know that me being light-skinned gives me license in a lot of people's eyes to get further in that conversation than they may other folks, right? Because if you show up having that conversation off jump, a lot of folks might be <laughs> like, oh, we're already... Cut off. Yeah, but I'm saying I'm jealous.
1: Oh, this well. <laughs> is about strategy, right? <laughs> when we're talking about Hollywood. We need you to turn down roles and say why. There are a lot of folks who want a and That's why I keep trying to just. I just don't want you to forget. You're not normal in that way, sis. Because money speaks to a lot of people. You feel me? And they're like, "Oh, I can be Nina. <laughs> I can be cake. How much you paying? Right? It's why I love Insecure so much. Right? Because you could have very well, no, you couldn't have because it's easy show, but to say, imagine Hollywood had written it in such a way that you were the main character. Cause the light skinned woman is always the main character, is she not? Or she's always the love interest, right? You don't have this kind of like pronounced light-skinned woman role in the show, which is not But more- I will tell you,
0: season one, I had to push back on there being so many light-skinned jokes. Cause I didn't feel like that was helpful either. Mm, okay. And then it became a thing that was happening off screen. Okay. And I was just like, I'm uncomfortable. Like, Go I don't ahead. know how, I just don't know how this, you know, that. I,
1: okay, we don't have to.
0: I, uh, <laughs> there's, there's just this town, like, I completely agree with you. Like on the surface of things, it is absolutely dope that *Insecure* is is helmed by two brown skin sisters, and that yes. was a decisive decision made by Issa. Yes, one thousand percent. I think, though, there is really just a considerable awareness that it lacks that lacks in this town around just protecting each other in Hollywood, and um, and who who deserves protection, uh, who, you know, with it, there, I thought that there was a black Hollywood, but there isn't, Mm -hmm. there's very, very clear there's clicks and 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 clicks. So it's very tribal in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, and I came into this town thinking that we were protecting blackness, um, Mm -hmm. and identity and culture, when we are creating and when we're going into these meetings and when we're on these sets, et cetera, et cetera. And you, you, you start to find out that that's just like you said, like money talks and that's not so just not like a given. Um, and that, that, that for me really took me to a place. And I talk about that all the time. That like it took me to a very, very dark place that I had to like come back out of. And only recently have I come back out of and like planted my feet again and been like, okay, I know I, I do because I was about to just leave this whole shit. Cause I'm just like, I don't what's I don't belong here. Um yeah. I'll just go open a scuba shop somewhere and call it a day. But then Something was awakening me, and Harriet is my patron saint too. And I think she kind of just came down with the lantern and was like, "Let me just light the way back for you, Boo, because oh. you got folks to save with your work, and you got shit to to do." And um, and I, <laughs> I have an ex used to call me the Black Oprah, and
1: yeah. <laughs> I'm doing this with you today, I won't do it. <laughs> nope, won't catch me.
0: <laughs> and. I think one thing that is interesting about this town and it's a gift. I don't know if it's a gift, but it's a strategy that I don't have,
1: hmm. but I've
0: never had this. I've never, I've never been good at like the tactile application of my light skinness.
1: Hmm. Like putting it to use.
0: Yeah. Cause I'm just coming I, in my mind. My, I am your skin color in my soul. So like I come into the room in, in, in that and then i re- i have to be reminded like no they're seeing this right and then it's like okay so use use this so that you can get that point across hmm. to people to people who would not receive it had they been had it been presented in a different package and like that's just a lot and so what ends up happening is i ended up just being loud and then it becomes well you're an angry life woman and you're too real and you'll never get a man um yeah
1: there's some tr- strategic training that we already But I to- proved wrong about that
0: last part. Oh, you got you a man. I did get me a man. Look at her.
1: Um. <laughs> I had to go back and
0: I had to import him from college because <laughs> I had to go 20 years back and come because they don't make him like they used to.
1: We cannot lose sight of the trauma. You know, when you were talking, you said you thought the goal was to protect Blackness. My immediate question is, which Blackness? Hollywood is an interesting place. What's that mean to protect Blackness? Which Blackness? So there's a racial Blackness. There's a cultural Blackness. There's a racial Blackness. There's a political Blackness.
0: Honestly, it's all of it. From Like, I will say this. The biggest privilege I believe I had was access to incredible educators. That is what changed my whole life. I had access to educators, particularly Black educators, who always included Blackness in whatever they were... So if we're talking about theater, if we're talking about politics, we're talking about social sciences, et cetera, et cetera. So I was very well versed in a large scope um, of, of Blackness as it relates to just, like, the bigger picture. And... So when I come into the space as a creative, all of those scopes are a part of that.
1: Yeah, you. I'm talking about them. Oh, yeah. You always say that. Right? Hello, who are we talking about? You <laughs> keep coming back to that. It's part of your work, Amanda. Is the work is, and it sounds fucked up to say. Maybe you have to like to yourself, meaning you're not normal. Like the expectations perhaps that you have of everyone else,
0: like the concept- Oh, well, no, no, no. Yes, yes. So I had to do that. Yes. Because I was going to kill myself. And then I, and, and that's what my therapist was like, well, let's not do that. Um, she was like, yeah, let's not, let's not, let's not kill yourself because other people are whack.
1: Correct. Let's other- <laughs> you live and live away from them.
0: <laughs> she was like, let's not. So let's, let's step back from that. And. But it was, a lot of it was around just like, somehow this became a therapy session, but a lot of it was around...
1: you former therapist. The, ah, she got me. Oh, I'm trying.
0: Doctor, doctor. Um, but I do feel like if we're going to get to the bottom of this one drop thing, I will tell you that the light-skinned folks who didn't align with this idea that we were different or that we were more accessing to whiteness, we have craved... Um, the unity and the love and the embracing of our Black brotherhood and sisterhood and family. Like, that's like a real thing, right? And so when I came into this town and the community that was already here, that is what I felt I was stepping into. A legacy that I had grown into, that I had watched, you know, whether it's a different world or, you know... Eddie Murphy's films, et cetera. So I had created this like fantasy Narnia, like a Negro-arnia. Based, um, on, based on, well, based on performance. I mean, not just based on performance, but based on like, you know, my interpretation of how I feel like people are moving in these spaces. And, you know, ultimately what people say is not necessarily what they do. And so that was kind of just like my young naivete at 38 (laughs) like but but the beauty out of that came me actually finding folks who are like myself right and there are more of us out here than you think you know it's just that those voices are louder because that's the goal and so I I know that I just want to always create more space for black voices that make more space for black voices, which is why there are certain people that I just simply don't, I don't even acknowledge their existence.
1: It's making me think of this uh, video that was viral a few years ago. You probably remember it. Little girl, little white girl in the backseat trying to put on her seatbelt, her dad's trying to have And she's like, worry about yourself. <laughs> worry about yourself. I got it. You drive. <laughs> worry about yourself. No thank you. Right. <laughs> thank you. It's always that tension of like again. I'm just gonna keep calling Mama Harriet's name. There's a there's a there's ways there's spaces in which you're gonna have to worry about yourself. And it's not to say you know fuck all these black people. Well no. those you know those who's coming they, 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 they're gonna go And those who stay, they, what you gonna do? You gonna hurt yourself? I think a lot take- of light skinned black folks.
0: You know you asked me about like the performativeness of like feeling like you gotta do. Um, you gotta be extra black. Like you gotta say nigga extra times, like nigga, nigga, like, you know, (laughs) I think sometimes it doesn't show up necessarily in that way, but it shows up more so in a way of like, I have more of a responsibility to save and to help and to, um, create space than because of my access. Right. Like that's where it shows up. And Mm -hmm. that ultimately can lead you down a road, right. Where you end up dating.
1: (laughs) Things oh, that you can't is- save because you feel like that's what you're supposed to do. <laughs> I can't. I mean, it's work. And I'm saying this to you, like I say it to myself, you know, because this work is so, and that's the thing I don't think many of us, if not any of us, we don't get credit for, right? We don't have to do this. We don't have to do this work, right? This work is painful in so many yeah. ways. Yeah. Right? Loving us costs, protecting us costs. And yet we choose it every single time, right? So you're putting yourself out there to be the recipient of all manner of stuff and still you show up again. So you gotta take care of yourself in that. And it's also about, you know, measuring the expectations. Like everybody ain't gonna love you. It's cool.
0: No, and I think as black folks, I know know a lot of my peers felt like this election really showed us that we say the words black people aren't a monolith, but we seem to always be surprised when we show that. <laughs> like, we're like, black people are not a monolith, but then we're like, why the fuck do you think that? It's like, no, really, we're not. Like we are a multitude of dichotomies and intersections. And um, and 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 it's beautiful and it's dark uh not by skin color but by virtue sometimes and um sure. and yet we must continue to to forge forward yeah. and I I really do appreciate this book because I think to and you said this you're just like oh like I didn't realize there were all these other people who considered themselves themselves black and I feel like that just strengthens the
1: force that's how I feel I want to see myself connected to as many people as possible, not isolate, like I'm this person from this, it's only us. It's mm. all of us. I see myself every single place I go. Like, you can't tell me I'm not Jamaican. I'll give a whole <laughs> connection between Ghana and Jamaica, I'll connect the dots between New Orleans and Haiti. Like, I'm all of us. These are all my folks and not just based upon what we look like, but like what we like. Blackness is a thing that we do. Mm -hmm. Blackness is a verb, right? Culturally, we are so connected. How dare we sit somewhere and just separate ourselves? That's what white supremacy intended. That's why they give us all these boxes and all these options. Guess which box they give themselves? One. One. And again, I don't want us to model ourselves after white folks. Never. Not saying that. But until we figure out our own strategy and our own power structure, right? Mm -hmm. We have to think critically about how we're functioning and how that is reflective of white supremacy ultimately. I can't afford to distance myself from you.
0: Well, we're friends now. So. (laughs) Um, now that we've done a whole therapy session and, uh, a dissertation on my light skinness.
1: uh, Um, but what I will say is when you feel the need to chop somebody else's head off because they gave you a light skin joke, just deep breath.
0: I don't chop. I just say, I don't appreciate that. Okay. Yeah. I don't chop because I, I mean, honestly, I know where that joke is coming from. So I don't chop. I just say, I don't appreciate that. Okay. You know, and I don't have those and I don't have the reverse of those jokes even in my. Like, con, like, I don't have a I don't have a version of a dark skin joke for a light skin joke. I, have so, I don't have a comeback. So the only thing I can say is I don't appreciate that.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and you have a, you have a huge platform. And I I think it's OK to also save some conversations for yourself. Meaning like things you want to work out, that you find your, your, your tribe, you find the group of folks. That absolutely. You-
0: Yes, which is why you know I've I've definitely been in that situation and learned the hard way. Like, mm, you could have also just done this, but that's the only child in me being like, I'm on my phone, and I'm by myself. And it's like, no, bitch, you uh, with 1.7 million people, relax. I want talk. <laughs> no. <laughs> the script. Well, before we go, you know, we have our segment, the script, where we give people supplementary materials to check out to support this conversation. So, of course, folks gotta go out there and get one drop shifting the race on shifting the lens on race by Dr. yaba Blay. Um, it's a be- and it's a beautiful book. You mm-hmm. know, I love that the cover is kind of like a linen, it feels like a matte linen. Um, yeah. and it's really just uh people's stories on how they identify as black and why and where they're from and um and 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 to your point you know increasing connectivity and that's really <laughs> that like really valuable um it. who is this on the cover that is a woman named to get some. she looks just like my husband on insecure's mom oh wow just wow. Like Stephanie Elaine, who was one of the producers of, uh, Boys in the Hood. Oh, wow. um, like she was, no, she produced Boys in the Hood. She wasn't even one of. So what are some other things that you feel like when well, we talked about homegoing?
1: Yes, please. Homegoing. Oh, I wish I could just like hold Yaa hand, like talk me through this. This is amazing. Um, homegoing for sure. Um, the first book I ever read on colorism, um, which was um, The Color Complex, uh, mm-hmm. Old Faithful. Um, but more recently, I've been telling everybody to watch the series Exterminate All the Birds.
0: I started it.
1: Yeah, exactly. Take your time. Patience, <laughs> let me tell you, first episode, first seven minutes, I was enraged. I had to I, pause it. Oh, but as a visual learner, a visual educator, like it's one thing to have words because it's not that You know, Raul Peck's work is just amazing, but it's not that he was saying anything brand new necessarily, right? But it was the imagery, it was the way that he was connecting the dots, exterminate all the moves.
0: And that's on HBO Max, folks. So that's where you can catch that. The Last Dose. Thank you so much. This is so lovely. And I, I just feel like, you know, women like yourself and the work you do and how you do the work, just like you said about Raul Peck, like being academic, you know, academics, you know, writers, you know, doctors, like yelling nothing new, but it's, but, but the way that sisters are coming into this space and with language and with flyness and with perspectives that have for so long just been considered as like some other shit. And it's like, no, 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 this is valid. This has merit. And this is, and this needs to be just as important as this white man over here um, is incredibly necessary. And I thank you for forging the
1: path. Thank you, Doctor Doctor. <laughs> thank you, ma'am. a podcast, a podcast network.